Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It could be the strongest hurricane to hit Florida's east coast in almost three decades. The lead starts right now. Hurricane Dorian poised to hit Florida as a Category 4, why officials fear it could keep getting stronger, as some gas stations are already tapped out. And with this major storm on the way, the Trump administration team is being led by acting rather than permanent officials, including at FEMA. That, as the president's gatekeeper, exits the White House. Plus, it started as a joke, but now thousands of people are expected to turn up at the secretive Area 51 in search of aliens. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Dana Bash in for Jake Tapper. Breaking news in the national lead. Dorian just upgraded, now a major Category 3 hurricane, and it will get even stronger. Dorian could grow into a Cat 4 storm before it slams Florida's east coast. The governor today telling everyone to get ready now. The intensity of the storm, I think there's a pretty high degree of certainty that this is going to be a major hurricane. You do have time before it reaches to prepare. With this powerful storm on the way, gas has become a major issue. Some stations are already out. Food and water are hit and miss at some Florida stores. Evacuation orders are starting to trickle in as another problem emerges. Dorian's forecast shows it's slowing down, which could mean it could linger for days. CNN has teams up and down the Florida coast ahead of Dorian. We start with CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchar. Allison, so Dorian's newest track will come out within the hour. What do you expect to see? We may see a change in that track. We've had new model runs come out for both the American model and the European model, and both of them showing changes, which may in turn result in an official track change from the National Hurricane Center. But here's what we know now. Hurricane Dorian winds are at 115 miles per hour. That officially makes it a major hurricane. The movement is still to the northwest at about 10 miles per hour. We're going to have to focus on that direction and that speed over the next 48 to 72 hours because that is going to answer two very essential questions, the where it makes landfall and the when does it make landfall. But here's a look at what we expect the track to do as of now. We still anticipate additional strengthening up to a Category 4 storm. Unfortunately, it will likely be that strength as it crosses over the Bahamas, and we still expect it to be a major hurricane when it makes landfall across some point in Florida. Then the question becomes, becomes when does it turn back to the north? These, this is where the different models vary. One going a little bit further west, one going a little bit further east. Here's a look. This blue dot is the European model. The red dot is the American model. The red dot wants to make a landfall likely late Monday night into very early Tuesday morning near kind of the central uh, portion of Florida. Then it pushes a little further inland before finally going off to the north. The European model, the new run, really just skirts along the coast, and they both then head up towards Georgia as well as into the Carolinas. 
Allison, thank you so much for that. I want to get straight to Florida to CNN's Rosa Flores, who is in West Palm Beach. And Rosa, the governor says fuel shortages have become a problem. You're seeing that firsthand. Is there a plan that you've heard about to get more gas to these stations? You know, that is the plan. Let me show you around because I'm at a gas station right now that does have fuel. And you can see that the line uh, curls around this uh, light. From talking to people here, they say that they have been driving around trying to find gas stations that actually have gas. This is one of the few in the area that actually does. But if you take a look here, some of the pumps do have gas. Others do not. The owner of this gas station says that his family owns four gas stations. Only this one has gas gas at the moment. Now, here's the thing. Because there is a state of emergency for all 67 counties, that waives the rules. That allows uh, the fuel of uh, the, the flow of fuel to come into the state. That, of course, is because Governor Ron DeSantis issued that declaration. Now, here's the other thing, Dana. Uh, we've learned from the governor's office that uh, Florida Highway Patrolmen will be escorting refueling trucks to strategic and critical areas in Florida, again, because there are already reported shortages. And Dorian hasn't even made landfall. But again, a lot of people here waiting in line, looking for uh, fuel stations that actually have fuel to make sure that they can be prepared for potential evacuation. And Rosa, real quick, have you encountered or heard about any reports of price gouging? Yes, indeed. The attorney general of the state of Florida uh, telling CNN just moments ago that they have received at least 1,000 calls of price gouging, most of those for fuel and water. In in fact, the owner of this gas station telling us that he was one of those uh, individuals who reported a price gouging of water. So we're going to continue monitoring and, 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 and seeing if those numbers will increase. But according to the attorney general's office, it is against state law to price gouge uh, uh, because there is that uh, evacuation, uh, excuse me, that that uh, state of emergency in the state of Florida. Dana. Rosa, thank you so much for that report. Now CNN's Leila Santiago is in North Miami where supplies are flying off the shelves. And Leila, um, what's going on? Is it a mad rush or do people feel like they have the weekend now to stock up? We've actually seen a little bit of both, some some moments where they're really peaking and folks coming in, and then a little bit like now where you're seeing it a, a, a calm down. I, we are in the section right now where this was made last night because of the hurricane, a section for supplies. You've got batteries, you've got a power bank to charge your phone. Of course, you need candles. They also have uh, extension cords, uh, presumably for generators that could be used should power come out. And then take a look over here where you can see this is a popular item, the lanterns, this uh layer is is just about gone. They've got some more down here. And I can see these folks are looking at the price, uh, getting ready. Uh, 15 bucks, she mentioned, to to have that lantern and be ready for Hurricane Dorian. Go right ahead, ma'am. So, you know, one of the things that folks are also looking for, water. We were here when a truckload came in. It lasted maybe about an hour before they ran out. Uh, and, and folks are, are, are making sure that they have those basic supplies to get through 
government officials are recommending at least seven days uh, it should should power be out, should uh, resources be limited after Dorian. Dana? Sounds like people are heating that an hour. Uh, that's all that a whole truckload of water lasted. That's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, thank you, Layla, for that report. I want to get now to CNN's Diane Gallagher, who is in central Florida at the Orlando airport. Diane, this is one of the busiest airports in the country. From what you're seeing, are they prepared? Uh, Dana, I would say that they are extremely prepared right now. And the truth is, is that the, the, the effect of Dorian hasn't quite hit this airport just yet. You can take a look here and see there have been expectations that you're going to have delayed, canceled flights. That hasn't kicked in just yet. What you're seeing over here is the, all the lines of people who are starting to try and fly out, though. We have talked to people who have cut their vacations short, people who were trying to get back. They didn't want to risk the fact if the hurricane came in early. And so here at the airport, I sat in on a meeting actually just beyond the those doors there where they sat with airlines, they talked with NOAA, they talked with the FAA and other members of government officials about how they can determine how long they can keep this airport open, when they can let these people actually begin flying out uh, if the storm starts coming. And so here's the thing. If you have a visit to Disney, if you have a visit to Universal right now, you can still come. But that may change in the coming days, Dana. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, Diane, thank you so much. We'll get back to you certainly as uh, more information comes out of the airport there. And up next, we're going to talk to a mayor whose city is right in the hurricane's path. Plus, the critical Trump administration posts not permanently filled, which could spell trouble during the aftermath. We're back with the breaking news. Florida bracing for a direct hit from Hurricane Dorian. Keith James joins me now on the phone. He is mayor of West Palm Beach, Florida, a city that right now is in Dorian's center path. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for joining me. The storm is gaining strength. What at this point is your most urgent concern? Well, our most urgent concern, our most immediate concern, obviously, is the health and welfare of all of our uh, residents. And uh, we are doing everything to get the word out to them uh, to be prepared. Uh, the storm itself will bring plenty of rain, so we've got uh, concerns about flooding. Uh, there'll be uh, wind, and so we're concerned about wind damage, et cetera. So the, more, the better people are prepared ahead of time, the better chances of uh, getting through this relatively unscathed. So we understand that you're joining us right now from West Palm's Emergency Operations Center. Do you anticipate ordering mandatory evacuations? Uh, we don't know. That is a possibility, and that's really going to be a call by Palm Beach County uh, because those evacuations will extend beyond the borders of West Palm Beach. Mm. And so we're going to take our lead, obviously, from the county itself. So I don't know uh, what the thinking is uh, over there. Uh, at the county, but we will certainly abide by whatever their instructions are. Okay, so obviously if an evacuation happens, people have to be able to leave. And we have been reporting that gas stations are reporting themselves that there are fuel shortages. So how are you and other officials there addressing that? So if people have to leave, that they can. Well, we've heard the complaints about fuel shortages as well, and we are using whatever uh, influence we might have uh, to try to get uh, fuel in. Obviously, the governor uh, has a, a little bit bigger uh, a pulpit to stand upon, a bully pulpit. Uh, but we, I know he's aware of the situation. The port's only an hour away from uh, where we sit here in West Palm Beach. So we're hoping that the combined efforts of the governor and, and, and us as mayors 
uh, can can influence uh, getting some fuel here immediately. And the governor did say today that he wants the Florida Highway Patrol to escort fuel trucks to these areas where there are gas shortages. Are your teams there in your city helping with that? Well, we, we haven't been approached. That would be the Florida Highway Patrol. We're certainly ready, willing, and able. However, the governor may need our assistance. We understand that that's going to be a priority. Um, and uh, we want to uh, be available to assist in any way we can with that effort. What's the communication level between you and not just county officials, but state officials, like the governor? Are you in communication? Yes, we are in communication. We're even in, in communication at the federal level. I have to say that the level of cooperation and collaboration uh, 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 among the different levels of government has been outstanding, and we anticipate that it will continue to be that Who way. Who are you hearing from at the federal level? Uh, we've heard from representatives at the White House, actually. I had a conversation uh, last night. Uh, we have cell- They have my cell phone number. I have their cell phone number. And uh, we, we, we know that we can get uh, attention at that level immediately if necessary. Um, one last question about the population in your city. It is uh, West Palm has a very high retirement population. Are you making special arrangements for the elderly, those in retirement or assisted living or even nursing homes? Well, let me correct one thing. The average age, the median age of West Palm Beach is actually 39 years old. So let me correct that misperception. (laughs) We're not just a city of retirees anymore. We're not trying Uh, to mess up your tourism. We're not your grandmother's uh, I understand. I've been there. but, But the fact is that there are people who will and need special a, assistance. And that's a very fair question. And we have sent out, we did uh, yesterday, we sent out teams of firefighters and police. We've identified all the nursing homes, all the assistant living facilities in our city. Uh, we sent them out on yesterday to check on them, make sure that they had uh, generator capability, uh, that they had sufficient uh, levels of, uh, of food and, and water. And so we're being proactive in this effort, and we're not going to be caught Uh, in a bind, as may have been the case in some other communities two years ago. Exactly. And that's precisely, as you know, why I asked the question. Keith James, thank you so much for your time. We'll let you get back to work and all the preparation there. Thank you. Thank you. And President Trump is planning to spend the weekend monitoring the storm, but he'll be doing it without two permanent chiefs in key positions overseeing this kind of, of issue. Now, any moment, President Trump will head to Camp David, We're going to talk more about that after a break. President Trump is about to head to Camp David, where he will be spending the weekend monitoring the path of Hurricane Dorian. Advising the president on the storm will be the head of FEMA, who serves only in an acting capacity, and it's his first hurricane in the job. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, this all comes as one of the president's closest confidants is forced out. As Hurricane Dorian heads for Florida, President Trump is headed for Camp David. The storm looks like it could be a very, very big one indeed. That's where he'll monitor the Labor Day storm, but he'll do so without a permanent FEMA administrator or a confirmed Homeland Security secretary by his side. New CNN reporting revealing that three months into hurricane season, Trump's pick to head the disaster response agency, Jeff Byard, is still waiting to be confirmed by the Senate. Acting Administrator Pete Gaynor has been running FEMA in his place. And while he has a decade of experience in emergency management, Dorian will be his first hurricane in charge of the agency. We'll probably short uh, a few thousand uh, employees when it comes to a reserve. Gaynor recently told lawmakers the agency's full-time force is fully staffed. 
But those temporary employees who help during disasters like this one are understaffed. It has been a struggle. Another official by the president's side during a natural disaster is the Homeland Security Secretary. But in the Trump White House, that position is also acting. But I said I like acting. Gives me more flexibility. Trump may prefer that term in front of his advisor's titles, but experts warn it could be damaging in the long term, arguing that permanent staff provide administrations with stability. Today, Trump declared a state of emergency in Florida. But it really began to form and form big, and now it's looking like it could be an absolute monster. The president has multiple properties in the state, including his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach which is projected to be directly in the path of Dorian. All this coming amid other turbulence in the West Wing. After one of Trump's most trusted aides, Madeleine Westerhout, was forced out after she revealed, quote, intimate details about the White House during an off-the-record dinner with reporters. Her abrupt departure, coming while she was on a summer vacation, stunned her colleagues, who described her as a loyal aide with a lot of power. Yeah, Dana, those aides certainly were surprised to learn the news that Madeleine Westerhout was going to be pushed out of her role. She was seen as someone who had major power. She was essentially a gatekeeper to the president, a president who came to trust this aide even after it was reported that she had been in tears after he won on election night. But in the end, it was something she said that got her pushed out of this job. Caitlin, thank you so much for that reporting. And we're with our panel, which is actually a perfect split. We've got reporters on one side and former White House officials on another, so we can really break down what happened. Bill Crystal, I'll start with you uh, as somebody who worked in the White House and um, has, you know, understands, frankly, the game, that there are off-the-record conversations that happen. Um, what are your, what's your take on this? So there are off-the-record conversations, and especially when you're, uh, you know, at a summer White House or at Bedminster or whatever, a long weekend, mm -hmm. you're not with your family, the White House staff's there, you go out to dinner, it's all off the record, and a lot of people do that. I think the executive assistant to the president, maybe she's a little too close to do that. I mean, I think yeah. the communications director, Kellyanne Conway, would do that, the chief of staff. Having said that, someone was out to get her. That is, think of it, think of it. She had a conversation with a bunch of reporters. The reporters didn't tell Donald Trump what she said, presumably, and they presume, so far as we know, it remains off the record. Someone else found out from, in the White House, I suppose, that she'd had this uh, conversation. Maybe there was something else that got out that Trump was unhappy about, and they decided to go after her and blame her. So it does show a certain amount of backstabbing in the Trump White House, which I suppose is not a huge, <laughs> not a huge headline. But for me also, the fact that they just fired her mm. and sort of what didn't deny her access to the White House that day, mm. I, you know, there are people we didn't work out when I was in the White House. And you find them a job in an agency. They have a few months to look. They, 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 they work in some lower profile place for a while. There are ways to ease people out of the White House. There and they wanted to make an example. Bill, there aren't many soft landings in the Trump administration. <laughs> look, here's the other thing, though. I mean, obviously, proximity is power. Um, and I can remember going, like in Martha's Vineyard, going out to dinner with reporters and the person who was the president's aide saying, you know what, I'm not going to come because... You have a few drinks and you're eating and you mm -hmm. know what? Off the record has definitely slid a bit during this administration. And you can't say anything that is so juicy from what I understand in the reporting. She said something that somebody then talked to somebody else about. And you have to be so careful. Well, off the record, just to be, I mean, not to be Pollyanna, but off the record shouldn't slide. Off the record Correct. is off the record. Because we have off the record conversations to get better understandings and context, uh, context of the people we cover and the issues that we cover. Yeah, and I look, I think Bill's right. Someone was out 
to get her. I mean, I think whatever happened there, somebody used that morsel to then feed into this. I, I do think, I, I think this sort of stuff, until we know exactly what was said, and we, we may never know, but it's hard to judge, well, was it justified, was it not justified? The, the one thing I would say is I, I do think Donald Trump is someone who demands total fealty, mm-hmm. total loyalty, right? But he doesn't, it's not a two-way street with his aides, right? It's, he, you must be as loyal to him as possible, but he has no requirement to be loyal to you. I, I was sort of struck the same way Bill was. She was, she was like walking people up into Trump Tower, interviewing people. I mean, she has been with him since the beginning, since he got elected president. You would think maybe you would bring her in, have a conversation, much less yeah. like, you know, you come here and all of a sudden your White House past doesn't work anymore. Sungman, you cover the White House. You know her. You obviously know the dynamics. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's difficult to um, underestimate her influence for, for an aide who is not a prominent aide and who has not yet reached the age of 30. She carried with her a great sense of power. You know, she's right outside uh, the president's office. I um, actually did a story earlier this year that talked about the president's tendencies uh, to call up senators at any given moment and for the senators to call back, um, to call, uh, call Trump at any given time. And one of the fascinating things that I picked up from my conversations with the Republican senators is that they're told by the president to just call Matt. Madeline. Mm. So I have heard voicemails from senators with Madeline's voice saying, the president has called you. Well, you can call back at any time. And she was really that access point, that gateway for so many, um, so many directly to the president. It speaks, I think, so much to, to his loyalty yeah. thing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it is, it, it, people have compared it to organized crime. If you go against him, that's it. I mean, I actually compared but, it today in a piece I wrote to Succession, the HBO show, which is like, <laughs> outside of his, if you haven't seen it, you should, outside of his immediate family. Yeah. That's right. If you cross him, there is, no, in his mind, there is no coming back, no matter to someone's point, no matter how close you are. But don't you think they often do try to keep these people sort of loyal? I mean, so Keith Schiller, who was the body right. man all those years, he's on a $15,000 a month contract with the RNC. Other people they have, move been, to the other people have okay. been treated well. Okay, they everybody's... get speaking gigs. I mean, the fact that they <laughs> just... Yeah, love the I know, I know, I know. There's a lot to love, and I do agree. I will put in this shameless plug for a succession. Yeah, yeah. All right, who's <laughs> scrutiny after Joe Biden mixes up a campaign trail tale Why one top Democrat is coming to his defense saying the rules of the game have changed. In our 2020 lead, Joe Biden is pushing back against criticism after his latest slip up on the campaign trail. But in an election where most Democrats top priority is beating Donald Trump, do voters care about the former vice president's gaffes or not? CNN's Jessica Dean reports. I mean, what is it that I said wrong? Joe Biden is standing by the story of military heroism he recently told in New Hampshire. I was making the point how courageous these people are how incredible they are. And so that, I don't know what the problem is. According to the Washington Post, Biden appeared to conflate the details of several true stories into one when he talked about a war hero in Afghanistan. This guy climbed down a ravine, carried this guy up on his back under fire, and the general wanted me to pin the silver star on him. I got up there and stand, this is God's truth, my word is a Biden. He stood his attention. I went to pin him. I said, sir, I don't want the damn thing. Do not pin it on me, sir. Please, sir, do not do that. He died. He died. 
During a 2011 trip to Afghanistan, Biden did pin a bronze star on a service member who the Post reports did not want the medal. But he was not the same person involved in the story Biden described. The Post adds, quote, in the space of three minutes, Biden got the time period, the location, the heroic act, the type of medal, the military branch and the rank of the recipient wrong, as well as his own role in the ceremony. I mean, what is the gaffe when I said there was a young man I tried to pin a medal on? He said, I don't want it, sir. He died. He died. He died. The former vice president, who has described himself as a gaffe machine, has maintained his frontrunner status in the race despite some verbal stumbles. Biden's misstatements sparking a conversation about truth in the era of President Trump, who's made more than 12,000 false or misleading claims since taking office, according to The Post. As for the Biden campaign, they're casting this latest misstatement as a moment of authenticity. The deputy campaign manager tweeting the final lines of that story from the Post in which the service member who was awarded the medal said of Biden, quote, he has that look where his eyes can see into your eyes. I felt like he really understood. Mm. Dana. Jessica Dean, thank you so much for that report. Back around the table, not to bring up um, um, you know, wounds that have now healed, <laughs> but when you were in the White House, you had uh, worked for somebody who made a mistake and became known for it. It was baked in. I'm talking potato and Dan Quayle. Right. So you have experience <laughs> whenever, with whenever people say, Whenever people say, not to bring up something. I remember our kids, our kids would always say, no offense. Yeah, guys. exactly. And then they're about to say something really damaging. But, Go right ahead. But the reason I'm asking that is because you have experience yeah. with dealing with a, with a major figure uh, for whom a narrative is, is built. How does this... So I, mean, I think the good news for Biden is he's not saying this to exaggerate his own role. You know, he doesn't make himself the hero of the story. He's a sort of a bystander and he's praising, authentically praising the 9-11 generation and these kids who are heroic. So in that respect, you know, he doesn't come off as a sort of uh, bad person, uh, self-aggrandizing, uh, self-aggrandizing type. On the other hand, if you get it wrong, you should just say, hey, you know what? I conflated two stories. They were both so emotional. You know, our kids are so, our soldiers are so wonderful. Uh, but I'll get it straight in the future. Instead, he seems to have said, I think today, was it? In response to double what? Double down on yeah, it. Yeah, sort of double down on it and said, I don't think I said anything wrong. It's a little hard to take Karen, that position, I think. I want you I to listen to what your former boss at the DNC, <laughs> Howard Dean, yeah. uh, said about this earlier today. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if the, if the voters can forgive uh, Donald Trump being corrupt and feathering his own nest with money, they can certainly forgive Joe Biden a few lapses of memory. I mean, I, I think Trump has lowered the bar so much. I do think the rules of the game have changed. Yeah, <laughs> this would be a, a time when I would have a conversation with him after the fact to say, <laughs> here's the problem. It will matter to voters to up until the point it actually starts to matter. For you know, there's a lot of this stuff that we follow very closely, where I think it's nuanced, and people are maybe not following it that closely. What what you said though, the problem becomes when it's a pattern, mm -hmm. and then people are asking themselves, well, did he forget? Was he embellishing? And in a general election, what I would worry about is when you are going up against a man who lies prolifically all the time. I would worry that it would take away one of our best arguments as Democrats against Trump. If we have to, if I have to worry about how I'm going to correct misstatements on our side, it makes it harder to then make the argument, well, the president is a liar. And what the Biden people are saying, I talked to, to somebody this morning, is, the, is sort of a different version of that, as you can imagine. But it, it, it makes sense, which is this is the way that the, the former vice president mm -hmm. has always been. 
It's not an age thing. He tells stories and maybe sometimes he doesn't get the details exactly right, but it's authentically him and uh, and that it's baked in. And that is the difference between they argue between him and Trump is that this is authentically who he is. And it comes out of a place of goodness, not it's not malicious. I'm sure Donald Trump, I'm sure Donald Trump will take it from that good and not malicious place. Uh, yes. Yes, I think that's true, Dana. I mean, look, uh, look at look at Joe Biden's entire political life. The guy himself acknowledged, "I'm a gaff machine." Before he announced, he's In fact, right. We have that. We can put it up on the screen. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, there we go. I'm a gaff machine. But it is true. I mean, this is he. This is who he is. That also doesn't mean that that's not potentially a, a problem for him. Right. One other quick thing. There is. It is not equal. Donald Trump's twelve thousand plus lies and misstatements and Joe Biden conflating what sounds like two or three remembrances Mm -hmm. at the same time, just because Donald Trump doesn't tell the truth all the time doesn't mean that that isn't potentially a problem for Joe Biden as it relates to authenticity, as it relates to providing to Karen's point, a clear choice. They are not equal. It doesn't mean one doesn't matter. And um, I mean, the gas aside, it is it is pretty remarkable how, despite all the arrows that Joe Biden has taken since he entered the race in April, just how resilient he still has been. I mean, so he makes verbal errors. He conflates details of stories and whatnot. And he's also taken a lot of hits from his from from the, the other candidates a race. He's mm-hmm. flip flopped on the Hyde Amendment. He's gotten attacked on trade. He's gotten attacked over the busing issue, the crime bill. And yet he still remains at the top of the polls. That indicates for now that the ability to beat Trump does seem to be at the uh, at the foremost front and foremost most of voters' minds at this point. All right. Thanks, everybody. Great conversation. Sorry, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Up next, a CNN investigation. One woman's struggle with a billion-dollar industry and what critics call a tax on the poor. A CNN investigation now uncovering how the billion-dollar bail bond industry preys on those who can least afford it in their most desperate times. Some critics call it an effective tax on the poor. As CNN's Drew Griffin reports, trying to pay off the debt has left some people in dire financial straits well after the charges are dropped. In Baltimore's poorer neighborhoods, it can take just one arrest to send a family spiraling into debt. It started with a phone call. Alice Hughes got the phone call from her nephew from jail. He was under arrest. The charges? Marijuana violating a protective order. Bail was set at $75,000. All I was thinking about was getting him out. The bail bondsman wanted 10% to get her nephew out of jail. Hughes gave all the cash she had, $700, and co-signed a loan payment plan for the rest. Defendants who use their own money for bail get the money back from the court if they show up to court. But bail companies don't give anything to the court. They take that 10% as a service fee, a fee people like Alice Hughes must pay no matter the outcome of her nephew's case. Guilty or not guilty? Guilty or not guilty. Whether I committed the crime or not. Whether your nephew committed the crime or not. Mm -hmm. That is correct. Veryl Powell is Alice Hughes' attorney who says people who can't afford to pay bond get a raw deal. They are forced between three impossible choices. One they could remain in jail during the pendency of the criminal case, which could take months or even years. Two, they could plead guilty. Or three, they could go to a bail bondsman. But this third option is 
not as simple as it sounds. Is this ruining people's lives? Absolutely. The scale of this bail industry is massive. The bail bond industry takes in roughly $2 billion every year, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, almost exclusively on the backs of the poor. But if the purpose of money bail is to make defendants return to court for trial, study after study shows it's hardly the most effective. The result? The cash bail system in the United States is little more than a tax on the poor for being arrested. The vast majority of people who are being detained pending trial have been legally released by the courts. They've just had money bonds set and have been unable to make them. 65% of people sitting in jails right now are not convicted. They're just awaiting trial. Many trapped by the unaffordable price of their release. Sharice Fano-Berdine with the Pretrial Justice Institute says those sitting in jail who have jobs will also almost assuredly lose them. And what research shows us is that someone who loses their job, uh, loses their source of income, then loses their housing and destabilizes their family is more likely in the future to get in trouble. Across the U.S., state after state is beginning to recognize the inequality and the damage being done by cash bail systems. And while a CNN review has found many states have been successful, in nine states covering more than a third of the population, the powerful bail industry has derailed, stalled, or killed reforms. Maryland made reforms in 2017, releasing more defendants without having to pay for bail. But the change came too late for Alice Hughes and her nephew. He was arrested in 2014. Those charges against him eventually went away, but her debt to pay the bail has never gone away. In fact, it has grown. After her nephew failed to keep up with payments, the bonds company sued her for the debt plus interest and fees that now total nearly $8,700. Her wages at work are being garnished. They're taking $131 and some odd cents per pay. And from what I understand, it will go on until they collect. Because of accruing interest, Alice Hughes may never be able to pay it off. All over the arrest of a man in Baltimore who couldn't pay his bail. And Dana, a bail industry spokesperson insisted the bail bondsmen aren't really the bad guys. They're just providing a service to those who are arrested. As for Alice Hughes, she is suing her bail bond company, part of a class action lawsuit. Dana? Drew Griffin, another excellent and important story on the bail bond industry. Appreciate that. And some two million people have RSVP'd online to meet up in the middle of nowhere. We'll talk to the man behind the Internet meme that took off and had the FBI asking questions. And in our out-of-this-world lead, President Trump this week is heralding the official launch of the U.S. Space Command, prepared to tackle the challenges beyond this planet. But thousands of people plan to take matters into their own hands, convinced the answers to what's really out there are hidden in the middle of the United States, as CNN's Nick Watt reports from Area 51. Storm Area 51, read Matty Roberts' Facebook post, they can't stop all of us. It was completely intended to be a joke. I didn't expect it to go anywhere. <laughs> but it has. It has. It's gone everywhere. Two million people now claim they're coming here September 20th. One recent online survey found 54% of Americans believe the government knows more than they're telling us. That's very apparent by my post. Everybody thinks there's something in there. Here's 
Issue number one. Nearest civilization is Rachel, Nevada. Population, 52. Little more than the Little Ailey Inn. Restaurant seating for 40. Ten bedrooms. Part of you must be thinking, OK, this is going to be great for business. Absolutely. And part is like... It's terrified. <laughs> She's scrambling to arrange enough food, security and free water for the desert heat. Issue number two, an Air Force spokesperson tells CNN any attempt to illegally access military installations or military training areas is dangerous. And you don't want your parents to have to bury you. I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) That is a gate into Area 51. Plenty of warning signs, plenty of cameras that are following every single move we make. And we were here less than five minutes and a white pickup truck did just appear as if out of nowhere. As close as I ever need to get to Area 51, I think. Robert says the FBI has already come a-calling. They knocked on the door, man. They just kind of sat down and chatted with me for a little bit just to see what kind of guy I was, making sure I'm not building pipe bombs in the living room or something. They're now trying to turn this into more of a music festival. I'm trying to advocate against the storming as much as I can. I'm trying, I just want a gathering of all these weirdos in the desert. The CIA tested the U-2 spy plane here back in the 1950s, and many believers believe they also keep captured alien life forms and reverse engineer downed alien craft, starting with the Roswell wreckage in the 40s. Conspiracy theories fueled by this base worker interviewed back in 89. The power source is an antimatter reactor. And suspicious sightings ever since. I've seen a lot of strange things in the sky that you can't really identify. The Air Force claims these 60 secretive square miles are used for earthling aircraft testing. That's it. This esteemed astronomer agrees. So clearly there are aliens out there. I think that that's, that's a pretty strong argument. But we don't have the proof of that, and I don't think that it's stacked up in southern Nevada. Honestly, I don't. Robert's best estimate, 20,000 people will actually show up here in the desert next month, some hoping to find out if there's really anything in there, all dreaming there really is something out there. This place is hot, dry, remote, nearest gas station, 50 miles that way, nearest hospital, about 100 miles that way. The sheriff says they're going to bring in officers, Anna, from across Nevada, hoping to prevent alien stock from descending into a dehydrated chaos. Nick Watt, what an amazing story. Uh, I have a question. Did you stay at the little alien We did. It was very pleasant, quite noisy because there were crickets in the bedroom. Apart from that, pretty good. (laughs) Of course there were, because you're in Rachel, Nevada, population 52. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for watching. Tune in Sunday for State of the Union. I'll be in for Jake. Our coverage continues right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.